Hey, repeat listener, you are about to hear the fifth episode in this six-part series. I highly encourage you to listen in order. So if you've missed one of our first four episodes, I suggest you stop listening to this one and go back and get caught up. Thanks for listening. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy Michael Koberg says he knows how to catch guys with guns. He's proud of it. So that was our thing. And for a while, the department really liked us taking guns off the streets. It's good for, you know, for PR. How do you PR. find a guy with guns on him? Sorry it's loud. Koberg and I talked outside of Starbucks in unincorporated East L.A., what's known as a busy patrol area. We kept getting interrupted by sirens. You know who your violent gangs are, you know the neighborhoods and who's warring and shooting at each other. So you focus your time and energy in those areas, doing traffic stops, um, informants, you're reading the graffiti, you know, and it's really not that hard to figure out who's battling who. And then you just start making your contacts, contacting, contacting, and then, you know, eventually you're going to run into somebody who's carrying a gun, doesn't want to go to jail. So they run, they toss their gun, they... They take off in the car, you know, they fight you for it, whatever, whatever the case is. Koberg said he worked hard and won a spot on the department's elite gang unit. He did what he was asked to do, and he was asked to get criminals and guns off the street. He loved it, the way you love something you feel good at. But he had to stop. He said it wasn't his choice. It was his department's. He got benched. Right now, they don't want guys out there chasing down bad guys because of the force or the potential shooting or, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. God forbid a a white cop shoots a black guy. They're more worried about the fallout of, you know, a racial issue or a political issue rather than serving a community that needs help. Have you ever shot somebody? Do you think that was part of it at all or no? Uh, Yeah, I've been in four shootings. Um, Do I think that was part of it? Yes. Yeah. How so? Or why? Again, they just want guys... Because my partner and I developed a skill of finding the worst of the worst. We were just really good at it. And the potential of us to get in another shooting was probably... I don't want to say high, because you don't go in the streets looking to get in a shoot. That's the last thing you want. You want to go home to your kids. But when you're finding guys with guns, some of them don't want to go home. Some of them don't care. And so they didn't want that PR battle, which I get on the business side of things. Do you think that's happening to a lot of officers? It is. It is happening to all of them. You're listening to Repeat. I'm Annie Gilbertson. This is Episode 5, Ship Magnets. Koberg told me, quote, I've been called a shit magnet my entire career. It's the type of proactive officer that makes more arrests, finds more guns, catches more gang members. It's always been a compliment, he said. And in Koberg's case, he's also shot more people. Most officers go their entire careers without getting into a shooting. Koberg has had four shootings. I wanted to talk to a deputy with multiple shootings. And Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza didn't want to talk to me. Koberg did. I asked him to tell me about his experience working the streets. I mean, 
with police work, especially in LA County, especially in these faster cities, use of force is an er everyday occurrence for just a, a station in general. You know, everybody thinks that uh, cops are heavy-handed, but really, we're not. I mean, it seems like we use way less force than what's actually needed in most cases. You feel like the cops are being painted as the bad guys. Yeah, and we shouldn't. People should be looking at these bad guys as terrorizing these towns. They they should want guys like me who will walk in a dark alley and confront this bad guy face-to-face. -face. But just know that I'm doing it for the right reasons, and I'm going to do it legally. Yeah, I think the flip side is that for too, for too long, uh, officers were too aggressive mm -hmm. on these communities, often communities of um, black and brown people. Um, and so, so yeah, it seems like it seems like a lot of the pressure to be less aggressive is coming from that viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, there's always room for improvement when it comes to tactics or physical aggression. And in some cities, there is. I mean, if you have a city that is low, has a lower crime rate, the force isn't. There's almost no force. Sure. But when you're in a city where it these gang members are terrorizing people they don't live by a force policy you know I, I gotta tell you it's it's hard for me to think of a time where I thought a deputy went too far I mean there's times where I'm like alright we're good we're good put cuffs on them we're done you know because there's a human emotion into it but I can't think of a point where they were just beating somebody up just to beat them up then Coburg's life changed I told you he'd been pulled out sidelined it happened when he caught a case. That's deputy speak for going under internal review. Being investigated by your own department. Something you've done has raised a flag at work. Cobra came under investigation after doing some side work off-duty in 2015. You're supposed to tell the department if you work side jobs. According to internal affairs records provided by Coburg, he did not. He was working a surveillance gig up in Ventura County. He was sitting in a car outside a house. Someone reported a suspicious vehicle. Local Ventura County Sheriff's deputies were called out, and there was an argument. Deputy versus deputy. Ventura Sheriff's officials complained, contacted the L.A. County Sheriff's. But anyways, they flexed on me. They um, called and told my um, lieutenant. My lieutenant contacted my sergeant. My sergeant asked me about it. Eventually, the case landed on the desk of Internal Affairs, which, according to the records Coburg gave me, found Coburg had broken rules by acting as a private detective. Rules about professional conduct, outside employment, and unnecessary interference. The report noted he had been disciplined twice before. This time, his judgment was called into question. Coburg thinks it was a non-issue, that really the department no longer wanted his aggressive approach to the job. And that this was the paper trail they needed. He was put inside. They, they did a lot of bad stuff to me when I... They pulled me out of the field. They knew I was going through a divorce. They pulled me out of the field, took my take-home car, told me I wasn't allowed to work overtime, and they made me drive to Inglewood every day, four to six hours a day in the middle of traffic for eight or nine months. I mean, it was, I was pulling my hair out. I've heard of using traffic as a punishment for officers. It's a thing in LA. It's called freeway therapy. What kind of work did you have to do after that? I was entering, um, information into one of our uh, systems where we track, you know, uh, FI cards and stuff like that. Tedious, and it's, you know... You're doing data entry. Yeah. But they tried to write me up because I only did 20 in a month. 
And I'm like, 20, I'm like, I took a couple days off. And then um, I cleaned their entire armory. I washed, I cleaned like 300 guns. You know, the, you know, the old joke, the Marine, peeling potatoes, you know? So they were just giving me, they're trying to break me. According to records, Coburg was still being paid as a deputy, around $100,000 in 2015. The Sheriff's Department would not talk to me about Coburg's complaints, said that what they could say was limited because officer personnel files are private. Coburg returned to the field for a stint, but then was transferred off the gang unit, ousted from the job he loved. The reason for the transfer? Coburg said a captain told him he had too many shootings. In 2012, Coburg confronted a man he suspected of drug possession. A struggle ensued. According to DA records, the man bit Coburg on the thigh and reached for his gun. Coburg shot him twice in the head. Then, two years later, Coburg confronted an armed man, suspected of shooting someone earlier that day. The suspect fired at Coburg and other officers. The suspect shielded himself behind his own baby boy. Eventually, the suspect released the boy. Coburg and the other deputies finally fired back. The suspect was shot. The baby was not harmed. Coburg was awarded a Medal of Valor. Despite the award, Coburg told me the department decided he could no longer have contact with the public. He was assigned to logistics. I'm helping uh, with equipment way outside of what I was paid to do. I mean, I'm washing trucks. My career went from gang unit for the largest sheriff's department in the world in Compton, South Central, to washing trucks. It's yeah. demoralizing, huh? Yeah, it's, it's a joke. I asked the sheriff about assigning deputies this type of work. L.A. County Sheriff Jim McDonald said they do not give deputies work outside the scope of an officer's responsibilities. When I told this to Coburg, he sent me a cell phone video of him walking into a long shipping container, cluttered with sagging cardboard boxes and a tangle of equipment. And I've been assigned to go through and clean it and get inventory of all this gear. And it's a ton of gear that needs to be inventoried. So this is my life. This is what I do now. The thing that struck Coburg that infuriates him now is that if all this was really about how he handled himself in the field and his shootings, Coburg said it seemed unfair. He told me I didn't have any shady shootings. All my stuff was legit. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office agreed, found all his shootings to be within the law. When it comes to shootings, the law gives officers lots of leeway, wide latitude. If an officer fears for his safety or the safety of others, the shooting is often found to be legal. It's one of the reasons why officers are not prosecuted, even when they shoot unarmed people. There are so-called awful but lawful shootings. And in those, consequences are not coming in the form of criminal charges. Consequences, decisions about officers who are getting into questionable shootings or violated policy or multiple shootings, are in the hands of their department. And Coburg told me the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is handling these things differently these days. The Sheriff's Department is a political organization. 
Okay. Um, our, the facade is deputies in the streets doing police work. Oh, we're just oh, it's just the deputies doing their job. Where there's so much behind the scenes that are going on politically, and so that's how we're used. So as the political agendas change, they'll they'll come at us officers differently. So what one year was amazing police work, you know, getting guns off the streets, you know, you get your occasional fight. And to where the next year, if you do that same exact thing under the same exact circumstances, you could potentially be fired or relieved of duty or taken out of the streets pending investigation or days taken off out of your pay, you know, for something that you've done 10 times before that. So they pick and choose when they want to use these things. Oh, that one went to the media. I guess we better give them 10 days off, no pay. Oh, that one didn't go to the media. So they're fine. Nobody knows about it. I've heard opposing ideas of what to do with deputies who get into multiple shootings. The crux of it lies in how you view police shootings generally. Do you accept that some officer shootings are inevitable? That shootings are more prevalent among deputies who get dangerous assignments? That it's part of the duty, something no officer wants to do, but every officer must be ready to do? Or do you believe that multiple shootings should be considered together? The difference between looking at the lawfulness of one shooting an individual unique snowflake versus looking at the accumulation of snow. And if you believe they can be connected to the decision-making by the deputy, to the training and tone and priorities of the department, do you take stock? Do you act and remove a deputy who's shooting again and again? Bench them. According to a handful of former and current department employees, officers themselves are divided on this issue. I asked John Fredendall about this, the homicide sergeant who investigated the shooting of Tanel Billups, Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza's second shooting. Fredendall told me, I think it's a travesty if you take a hardworking deputy out of the streets and bench them. Fredendall says it's an officer's responsibility to arrest criminals. It's a job that requires they get into stuff. He said, there are shit magnets. It's difficult, Fredendall told me, to explain to the public. I'm gonna try anyway. After this break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. I recently found myself in Ontario, San Bernardino County, east of L.A. It's where many people have escaped high housing prices in L.A., escaped to the desert. I pulled off the freeway and passed an In-N-Out burger. Behind it lay a crisp backdrop of the mountains, the Angeles National Forest, the purple silhouette of a giant sleeping on its back. I pulled into the parking lot of an office building. You here from Tony? I am. What gave me what gave me away? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> what, you know where we're at, right? Second floor, right? Uh, 210, yeah. Second floor. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. I'll see you in a bit. 
I was there to see Anthony Ferlano, a former deputy, another repeat shooter. His shootings, they made the news. Hey. Did I walk right by you, Tony? I did not see you. Okay. Oh, you did? Okay, well. Old habits. You know. I like, I like to think I'm an observant person, but... I've actually become less... Anthony Ferlato is retired now. Part of him is still no-frills former deputy. He came to the interview in flip-flops and shorts. He likes 7-Eleven coffee best. I'd spoken to Ferlano before, off tape. That time, he got pretty wound up, talking about his patrol days. Not angry, but not holding back any emotion either. He dropped the occasional expletive. He described sheriff's leadership as being motivated by politics. As he put it, quote, my dick is bigger than your dick. This time, he's restrained, languid. Maybe it's the microphone. Can you just, like, take, like, a, a five-inch scoot? Okay. Um, Sorry, I don't talk real loud sometimes. Yeah, no, I think you're yeah. good. I think just, like... Just ignore this stuff. I know it's kind Ferlano of... Ferlano joined the sheriff's department in 1994. The job could be demanding. He missed birthdays, holidays, special events, Sundays with his kids. And it could be gruesome. According to records, he once saw a child whose head was severed in two pieces in a car crash. Ferlano trained for patrol at Century Station. He told me, I had no idea how violent the world was. You don't realize how evil people are. Ferlano went to work in Compton, then the East L.A. station. Do you feel like uh, you encountered more guns than most, many other law enforcement officers? Um, my perception is yes. Um, I, I can't even count how many guns that, that I've taken What's off the street. Estimate? Hundreds. Hundreds? I mean, there would be some individuals you'd find two or three guns on, you know, you just don't know. Yeah. Like in their car? Like oh, that. on their person, in their car. You know, yeah. yeah, guns hidden anywhere. Yeah, but then the same. There's uh, the guys that you work with that, that find dope all the time. You're like, how do they find dope all the time? I don't know. It just happens that way. Or the guy that's always uh, finding a stolen car. You know, with, with somebody in it and they're in pursuit. It's like this guy gets stolen cars like almost all the time. It seems and it just works out that way. It's I don't know. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Just uh, it happens. The first time we talked, Ferlano put it this way, quote, I happen to be a ship magnet with guns. There's another way to look at ship magnets, that dangerous encounters, and by extension, the shootings that might result, are not so much dictated by the deputy, nor by the department, but by the actions of the suspects. One department employee explained it to me as, call it good luck, call it bad luck. It happens. That is, shit happens. And since you can't always control what's around you, well, Forlano describes these interactions as though fate had intervened. Misfortune. You don't want to hurt anybody or kill anybody. But it's unfortunate that whoever it is that you stop or come across, that they're going to dictate how the rest of the, the stop goes. If they become violent, then it ends up becoming violent. If they're cooperative, then it's cooperative. Yeah. Mm. So talk to me about um, 
the most recent um, shooting incident you were a part of, um, what happened that day? Um, that night I was uh, working overtime in East Los Angeles. And there was a, a call of a female screaming. Verlano and his partner responded. According to DA records, a witness told them he had seen a young Latino man riding a skateboard with a gun. Verlano and his partner found a man that fit the description. Verlano noticed a dark object in his hand, which he later realized was a cell phone. He ordered the suspect to stop, drop what was in his hands. According to the DA record, the suspect ignored the commands and continued to approach. A struggle ensued. Verlano called it a stand-up wrestling match. I was holding one wrist and my partner was holding the other wrist trying to get him on the ground and handcuff him. And as his uh, hands uh, brushed over his pocket, you could feel the, uh, the silhouette of a gun inside of his pocket. And he was able to get in his pocket and that's when he produced the handgun. He pulled it out of his pocket. Verlano had his own weapon raised. Why is he doing this? Why is he not saying anything to us? Why is he forcing me, you know, into this situation? According to DA records, Ferlano shot. The suspect ran away. The partner deputy said the suspect reached towards his pocket, and he shot too. The man died. Ferlano told me he was devastated. He thought, fuck, why me? Why me again? He dictated what what occurred, and, you know, now I have to live with it. Questions about the shooting were to be expected. This was not Ferlano's first shooting. This was his seventh. But this time, Ferlano said, was different. Uh, by far, it was way different. Uh, it was very political. A man named Michael Janako got involved. It was 2013. At the time, Janako headed the Office of Independent Review. It was his job to scrutinize Los Angeles County deputy activity, the department's practices. So what drew your attention to this one particular deputy and his record? Uh, Well, uh, clearly the number of shootings that the deputy had been involved in um, caused him to be an outlier. As we learned, um, most officers who are out on patrol uh, do not get in in any officer-involved shootings during their careers, um, or one at most. So does it raise red flags when a deputy has two, three, more than three officer-involved shootings? It raises all kinds of flags. Um, Even if in isolation each shooting is, quote, justified under the law, um, it does call into question decision-making by the deputy. For Janako, it was not always about chance, not always about fate. It was about choices, the choices of the deputy the choices of the department. Janako found the department returned Ferlano to the field after his first and second and his third and fourth and his fifth and sixth shootings. This after the department had found issues with his sixth shooting, according to court records. The sixth shooting was in 2011. Ferlano was chasing a suspected stolen vehicle and fired several times at the driver. According to district attorney records, Ferlano said the driver had a handgun. Investigators did not find a gun. Ferlano declined to speak with me about this incident, citing pending litigation brought by the driver. According to lawsuit records, Ferlano fired out the car window across his partner's body. Records said he was disciplined for that. Ferlano was assigned desk duty, according to a civil complaint he later filed. 
He didn't stay there. According to Janako and Furlano, Furlano petitioned higher-ups, asked to go back out on duty. It had been more than two years since his last shooting. Furlano got his wish. Furlano told me within a couple weeks of returning to the field, he was in his seventh shooting. Do you think that it was, so was it that, you know, the the leaders of the department, um, basically, you know, they didn't have a system and process, so they weren't aware of, of multiple shootings? Or do you think that they were reluctant to uh, pull a deputy from, from the field? Uh, there is always going to be a reluctance to move a deputy from a patrol assignment. And it has to be done thoughtfully, and it has to be, you know, it has to be done based on evidence and concern and risk management issues, and potential liability. It is not a decision that should be lightly made. The pieces together can tell a story. Janako says it could show the officer may be more sensitive to potential danger. They may be perceiving threat when there's not one, a jumpy deputy. Or they could be too aggressive. Janako said an officer may be putting themselves in harm's way. They get in too deep, they do not perform uh, consistent with principles of officer safety, and then they are find themselves in a situation or situations where they then feel the need to use deadly force to shoot themselves out of harm's way. It can be the difference between taking cover and closing in, keeping options open, or limiting them. And there are consequences for failing to recognize or even consider that there may be patterns. Well, the concern um, with returning a deputy to the field who's not ready is obviously uh, it may increase the chance that there could be another deadly force incident. Obviously, that's the ultimate concern. More shootings can mean more lawsuits and more million-dollar settlements. So cutting back, that's risk management, the life-and-death kind. So when Janako noticed Furlano, he made a lot of hay. He wrote a letter to county officials. That's when Furlano's story hit the news. Seven shootings all linked to one Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy and the sheriff. The deputy had been assigned desk duty in East L.A. after shooting number six in 2011. the second time they were supposed to remove him on. Emotions ran high when the Oliva family came face to face with sheriff's deputies in the East L.A. Sheriff's Station tonight. The sheriff's department was under pressure around this time, 2013. The department was still under heat for the jail scandal a couple years before. The allegations of deputies using excessive force and the department's responsibility to correct behavior falling short. The sheriff at the time, Lee Baca, was under pressure to step down. Ferlano describes it like a storm had hit. He found himself pulled into the eye of it. They uh, put me inside. Um, they wouldn't allow me to wear a uniform, be in a black and white, around a black and white. They wanted me to go to work custody or courts, um, which I didn't want to work either one. Um, after the shooting? After the shooting. So, so then what were you, um, what kind of tasks were you assigned, right, in this new job they were trying to place you? Just so I can get a sense of, like... You know, uh, well, at, at first, when they benched me, um, I was still at Copsboro, and like I said, I wasn't allowed to wear a uniform, so I stayed in the office all day, and I had to keep busy. I was told to uh, do paperwork, and paperwork only takes so long to do. And then I was told, like, well, you know, it was a small building there in Lakewood, a uh, county building, and um, clean up outside or, or, you know, 
sweep or mop in the hallways or clean the bathrooms or something. All this menial work, which is, is you know, fine and dandy if you're at home, but it's, it's a little degrading amongst your peers when you've worked so hard and you've had so much training. Records show Forlano was still being paid as a deputy, around $100,000 per year. The DA reviewed the shooting, said it was within the law, same as the six before. The department still had to complete its internal affairs review. Forlano felt persecuted, felt the department had it out for him, wanted to fire him. It struck me. Many people I had talked to questioned the level of scrutiny given to officer shootings, the practice of law enforcement investigating their own. These officers felt intensely scrutinized, saw a department with the power to put moments of their lives under a microscope, make decisions that could alter their future. And the process this time didn't sit well with Ferlano. According to Ferlano and two other sources, there were murmurings inside the department, murmurings that the gun had been planted to justify the shooting. The deputies denied this. DA records said the gun was found at the scene. These sources asked not to be named because they still work for the department and they fear retaliation. Berlano said in court papers that he had to submit to a DNA test. Investigators got a swab from the inside of his mouth, same as they do for those suspected of a crime. DA records show the test did not match either deputy's DNA to the material on the gun. Other questions were raised. The family of the man, Ferlano, and his partner fatally shot, Carlos Oliva Sola, claimed the shooting was unjustified. The family filed a civil rights lawsuit, a claim that included a slew of problems with the shooting. According to the lawsuit, the young man was beaten to the ground prior to being shot, and at a point during the shooting was unarmed. Ferlano told me the suspect had dropped the gun at some point during the encounter, but deputies didn't realize that until after. According to court records, two years after Fulano's last shooting, the department found he had used improper tactics. When I asked Fulano about this, he told me his actions were within his training and experience, that the finding was a pretext. According to court records, the department decided to fire him. The department settled the lawsuit with the family of the skateboarder killed in 2015, according to the family's attorney, Dale Gallipo. He told me the department's public position on the shooting hadn't changed. Quote, they came up with a story that the kid had a gun. They were sticking to it. This attorney, he takes on a lot of these cases. Gallipo is a big name for police shootings in California. He's skeptical of departments doing their own investigations into shootings. And he's skeptical of the findings. He told me they do an investigation to make it look like they're investigating. He said this case was memorable because after years of fighting, the department's lawyers abruptly decided to settle. A call came in. They wanted it settled that week. He said that speed was almost unheard of. The final settlement, $2.5 million. Galipo told me, quote, something was up with that case. If the top brass wanted Furlano out, as he says, they eventually got their wish. He left the department. In lieu of being fired, he medically retired. He got to keep his pension. According to Transparent California, which is based on public records, he's collected about $60,000 a year after retiring. Reflecting back, Ferlano told me, shootings are awful. You already feel bad, he said. And we get punished. 
The sheriff's department declined to comment about Furlano and these incidents. They said they're prohibited by law from disclosing information in an officer's personnel file. Information that might include investigations and discipline. Sheriff's officials did agree to talk to me about how they're handling officers with multiple shootings. So I asked them, how many shootings are too many? Uh, well, generally, uh, if you hit your third deputy involved shooting, it triggers an automatic shooting review analysis. This is Anthony LaBerge. He's the undersheriff, number two in command. He said, yeah, the department is tracking repeat shooters now, have been examining their cases, the accumulation of incidents. They started in 2015. Uh, so we looked at what's the environment they're working in, what's the commonalities of these shootings, or they went through some training, did that have any factor in the second shooting or not? And, you know, then we'll make a recommendation as to uh, what we think is best for the employee and, and the community. You know, we don't want to have an employee working in, uh, in the community to where the community feels unsafe around this individual. So that's why we take a strong look at it. We look at the risk and liability that we expose uh, the community to, as well as our own uh, members. And LaBerge said it doesn't always mean having to take a deputy out of the field. Sometimes what's needed is more training or a shift change. I've worked all shifts, so I can tell you uh, working day shift, you know, your activity is dramatically different. You're taking more reports, you're handling different types of calls. You may be handling a call of a truancy, uh, um, a child neglect, uh, an issue at a school on day shift, uh, a burglary report, so the people wake up in the morning, find their car was burglarized, uh, and then as it gets later in the day, uh, into the PM shift, and then, you know, more and more people are out and about, and uh, the criminal element may be drinking more and now starting to get out and do their thing. Uh, you know, the drug dealers come out now and start coming out in the, in the evening. And then all the way into early morning shift. I spent a lot of time on early mornings, which is your midnight uh, shift. And that's where you found your shootings and your stabbings and your robberies going on in the nighttime. So those encounters and those type of activities were much greater working those nighttime shifts. According to DA records, both Coburg and Furlano's most recent shootings were at night. Coburg, sometime after 10 p.m. Furlano's, after 1 a.m. Not everyone thinks the sheriff's department is changing for the better. The officers I talk to say the potential internal affairs cases or being pulled from the field is creating a chilling effect. That deputies are reluctant to go into that alley, to run after the suspected bad guy, for fear of punishment, for what they see as good and necessary police work, as messy as it can get. It's difficult to check the chilling effect claim. Arrests have been going down for years at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And they say the new climate, that rolled in with the new sheriff, Jim McDonnell. So I went down to the Hall of Justice to ask the sheriff about it. Hi. Hello. I have an appointment here. You're a county employee? No, I have an appointment with the sheriff. McDonald spent decades in law enforcement at the LAPD. Then he went on to be the chief of Long Beach PD, only to watch as the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department jail scandal called into question the integrity of the officer's badge. McDonald had a front row seat to what had gone wrong at the sheriff's department. 
He worked alongside Miriam Krinsky, sat on the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence, CCJV, heard all about reports, found, shoved into drawers. And McDonald thought he could do better. So he ran to be the next sheriff of Los Angeles County. You know, the term I used at the time was to restore the luster to the badge. Uh, I believe that now in a little over three years that we have been successful in in, uh, going a long way toward doing that. Uh, You know, people often ask... Do you think officers were being held accountable? I I think there were some in the organization that were not being held accountable appropriately and that... um, they did things they sh- they certainly should not have done, and I think the indictments we saw sh- showed the extreme uh, on that continuum. Mm. But the vast majority of uh, members of the organization are doing a very difficult, complex, and dangerous job exceptionally well every day. Those indictments included former Sheriff Lee Baca and more than 20 other department employees. McDonald said under his leadership, officer shootings have gone down. According to department records, in the five years prior to 2015, McDonald's first year in office, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department averaged 41 shootings a year. In 2017, the number was eight. And so we have uh, dramatically reduced shootings and continue to do so. However, we don't decide um, on the number of shootings. We respond to radio calls, to situations in the field where we're confronted with uh, issues that sometimes require a use of force, including deadly force, and that's the nature of the job. Well, I've also heard um, from deputies and from um, sheriff's personnel that, um, you know, under your leadership, you're you're benching or reassigning deputies with multiple shootings. Um, If what you say is the case, that shootings are the fault of the suspects or the circumstances, then why pull them from the field? Well, we look at each one individually. We don't do that generically. We look at the, the merits. We look at the, uh, you know, the details of each use of force, a significant use of force. We, we tear these things apart down to a level where I think most people don't have an appreciation for that at all. We hold our people accountable uh, to a very, very high degree. There's a lot of people that depend on McDonald to get this right. The people of the county that felt the department needed to change. And his deputies. He told me he sees it as his obligation to reduce force where possible. And I know he also needs the buy-in from the men and women who work for him. Not all of whom appreciate deputies being taken out of the field. You know, if they get reassigned, it's, it's assignments where they're doing data entry or they're mopping or washing buses, but they're still making the salary as a deputy. So I guess what I'm saying is... No, uh, that's, that's not accurate. It's not accurate? We don't have people doing maintenance duties or, or those washing buses or those kind of things that we're taking out of the field for use of force. We, do, we take very seriously the value of each employee within the organization. We don't give them a demeaning job or a job that's not within uh, the parameters of what a a deputy sheriff should be doing. You know, when I was reporting this story, I came came across this term that I heard from several sheriff's department employees, and the term is ship magnets. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you heard that term before? I have. Yeah. McDonald grinned, amused. How how are you separating sort of the troublemakers from, like, you know, the hardworking deputies? Well, that's what the investigation's for. We, as I mentioned, we tear them down. We look at them from every angle. Uh, we, we try and get to know everything we can uh, about the individual, about the circumstances, about the way the uh, use of force and the scenario played out. 
So it kind of sounds like what you're saying is is that in some ways it is the circumstances of what the deputy encountered in the field, but that there's also some responsibility from the sheriff's department to, as you say, mitigate risk or the potential the potential for more shootings where possible. Absolutely. Like both are true is what you're saying. Uh, both are true, absolutely. And the department seems to be tracking deputies with repeat shootings. There's a list. The list includes the deputy's most recent shooting and whether they had been in a previous shooting, and if so, how many. My colleague, data reporter Aaron Mendelson, found it on a county website. The thing is, the list is anonymous. You don't get the officer's name. Aaron found the names anyway, cross-referencing the shooting dates with district attorney records. It was a big undertaking. So we focused on deputies who got into shootings after 2010. Anytime they hit someone or shot and missed. We found more than 30 Los Angeles County Sheriff's officers who shot at least three times. It's officers like Deputy Michael Maybe, who shot at three people, one of them reported as unarmed, and Deputy Rodolfo Santana, who had five shootings, at least twice striking unarmed suspects. Deputy Coburg, who you met, is on there, so is Ferlano, and Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza. We asked the department how many had been benched. They didn't tell us. And we found this one group of officers, the so-called outliers, were responsible for an outsized share of shootings in L.A. County. Over the course of their careers, these officers used deadly force at least 136 times. Even when a fatal shooting is found to be justified. The family, the community, must still grapple with the loss of life. Anthony Ferlano says that's true for deputies, too. On one hand, he didn't like being benched. He filed a lawsuit claiming the department was discriminating against him. According to court records, Ferlano said supervisors told him he was too old for patrol. He was 50. The department denied wrongdoing. The case settled for about $40,000. On the other hand, Ferlano also says the shootings have affected him. He filed several workers' comp claims when he was at the sheriff's department. According to records, Ferlano was experiencing extreme feelings. He didn't think he could go back to law enforcement, that it was too emotional, that after years as a deputy, he had PTSD from the shootings. He didn't want to talk to me about this much, except to say, Um, You'll go see a a psychologist for the shooting and talk to them for about an hour. And that's another another area that the department fails in, uh, you know, just going to talk to someone for an hour after having to go through a a deadly situation like that. And, you know, and very, very unfortunate to take somebody's life. And even when the other person does live, you still go to that, but you're still having to deal with that in your head and your emotions and it's not something that, that your everyday person has to go through. So they should put a little more into it. Do you ever use guns anymore? No. Mm-mm. Not even just like a shooting range or anything? No desire. Is that because of the shootings or is that just because you're not interested? Uh, it's a bit of both. I've never really... In, into guns and, and the, the sound and the smell and everything uh, brings back memories.
The year Furlano left the department, 2015, it was tough for him. He was in a road rage incident, according to DA Records. A man driving his son to school called 911, saying that Furlano had pointed a gun at him. Furlano said no, that it was the other driver who pointed a gun at him. The DA decided not to prosecute. Two months later, court records show Furlano was convicted for driving under the influence in Riverside County. He declined to comment about this. I asked Furlano, did he think he was unlucky that he had had seven shootings? I don't know if I'd say unlucky, um, but unfortunate. It's still with me today. Like I said, I have nightmares. I I cry about it. messes with me emotionally. Sometimes I don't want to talk to people or be around people. Uh, it's ruined relationships. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I'll, if it's like this way now, I'm pretty sure it's going to be like this the rest of my life, you know, until I could figure a way to uh, deal with it. How does it, how does it like still manifest itself in your life now? Like when, like what are you thinking or how does it come up or? Um, sights or smells or, you know, something, I'll, I'll, like I said, sight, you know, a vehicle I'll see or, or you know, a sound I'll hear or loud noises, you know, startle very easily. It kind of takes you back to a, a situation, whether it be a shooting that you were involved in or, or a shooting that you're at and, you know, there's somebody laying on the ground dying and you're the last person they talk to. You know, you don't forget those things. Sounds kind of haunting. Yeah, it could be haunting. I guess you could say that, but, yeah, it's definitely something that uh, doesn't go away. The few times I've talked to Ferlano about his shootings, he shifted between formal use-of-force terminology and raw emotion, like a leak, slow and pungent, from a tear in the flesh. Officers are trained to articulate use-of-force, but the emotional weight of it, Ferlana told me, I still deal with it now. I don't sleep well. I cry. I'll shut down. He pulled up the collar of his gray T-shirt and covered his eyes. He held it there. The room was silent, The conversation stopped. Then he released it. The neck of his shirt was wet. He seemed embarrassed. He told me, you don't want to be looked at as weak. Our final episode of Repeat, that's next week. Thanks for listening to Repeat from KPCC. Our editor is Evelyn LaRubia. Additional reporting from Aaron Mendelson. Production from James Kim. Trisha Tonko is our fact checker, and our designer is Katie Briggs. Our music was composed and performed by Andrew Eben. Thanks to the KPCC product, digital, and engineering teams. Our senior producer is Arwen Champion Nix. I'm Annie Gilbertson. 
If you want to support more work like Repeat, I have great news for you. You can do just that. Just go to kpcc.org slash repeat and make a donation. If every Repeat listener gave $1 per episode, we could fund a whole other investigative series. That's kpcc.org slash repeat. While you're there, you can find a link to our Facebook group. I'm there every day engaging with listeners and sharing more about what I have learned while reporting this series. I'd love to answer your questions and hear your thoughts.